Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Today on our show, the struggles of adjunct faculty at California's community colleges as they fight for better pay, benefits, and security. And later, big band music is back on stage this weekend at the annual San Joaquin Valley Jazz Festival. But first, last May, thousands of San Joaquin Valley residents receiving treatment for chronic pain were left without care when LAGS Medical Centers, one of the state's largest networks of pain clinics, shut their doors with little warning amid a state investigation. In the months that followed, Kaiser Health News found that the clinics had been engaging in unorthodox and ethically questionable practices. To learn more, I spoke with two reporters behind that investigation, senior correspondents Jenny Gold and Anna Marie Barry Jester. So the report starts with the abrupt closure of LAG's medical centers. Uh, Jenny, can you explain what were these clinics and, and who did they serve? So Lab's Medical Centers is a chain of about 28 clinics that was throughout the state of California. Most of them were in the Central Valley and the Central Coast, and they specialize in treating patients who were dealing with chronic pain. That's usually caused by a debilitating illness or injury. And a lot of those patients have been prescribed opioid medications to treat that pain. Um, we know that some of them were on fairly high doses. Um, and we know from the state of California that LAGS had a lot of patients who were on government-funded health insurance, and that includes about 20,000 patients on Medi-Cal, which is uh, California's health insurance program for low-income people. And a lot of the LAGS patients uh, were pretty vulnerable, both medically and because, you know, they tend to be pretty low-income. And in a place like the Central Valley, there just often aren't a lot of medical clinics to choose from, so especially in terms of pain clinics. Um, And LAGS was one of the only games in town for people with chronic pain there. Anna, can you explain who owns LAGS Medical? So according to records from the Secretary of State, uh, the chain of clinics, they, many of them operate independently, but they appear to all be owned by Dr. Francis Ligatuda. He's a doctor who specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation, which is a type of pain management care. So Jenny, I want to come back to the, the clinics. Are, are these kinds of pain management clinics common? Um, well, so LAS is one of the largest pain management clinic chains in California, Um, But there are pain clinics across the country. Uh, They tend to be um, places where a lot of chronic pain patients are prescribed their opioids. Um, And that's especially true because the government really has cracked down on opioids, and a lot of primary care doctors are really hesitant to prescribe them or or even see patients who are on higher doses. Um, So these pain clinics like LAGS are where a lot of chronic pain patients end up going for their care. Um, and this sort of abrupt closure of a chain um, is not uncommon, we heard from experts. Uh, and they said that's really distressing. It can cause a crisis that you rarely see in, say, other fields of medicine. We heard, for example, from um, Fresno's interim health officer who told us, for example, you don't see oncology clinics shut down overnight the way you do see this with pain clinics. Um, and, and when pain clinics close down, there's just typically not a lot of alternatives where patients can go because doctors don't want to take on new patients who are already on opioids. Um, what we heard from the experts was, was really that in, in the 1990s and early 2000s, pain clinics tended to make a lot of their money from prescribing a lot of opioids and even getting paid in cash by patients. You might have heard those described sometimes as, as pill mills. Um, but in more recent years, as the government really started cracking down on excessive opioid prescriptions, um, the experts we talked to told us that 
some pain clinics started doing more procedures instead, like injections. Um, and those procedures actually tend to be more lucrative than prescribing opioids. They can also be harder for officials to scrutinize, um, especially since for, for some patients, procedures can be a really important and helpful part of pain treatment. Certainly. And I, I do want to come back to, to, to hear more about those procedures specifically. But uh, before we go there, uh, Anna, can you talk about the investigations, the state investigations into LAG's medical centers uh, prior to their shutdown? Yeah, so we, you know, we were actually weren't able to learn that much. Everything is very under wraps at this point, and the state can't comment on ongoing investigations. But what we do know from the state is that, according to the California Department of Healthcare Services, several lag medical facilities were suspended from participating in Medi-Cal due to quote potential harm to patients. And there's also an ongoing investigation by the State Department of Justice into what they call credible allegations of fraud. Um, the state declined to elaborate on the nature of those investigations further, though. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so, Jenny, broadly speaking, how did these clinics make money? How were they profitable? Um, so, unfortunately, we we didn't have the financials for LAG, so we weren't really able to peer under the hood and see really how they were making money. Um, so, we turned to state and federal data from Medi-Cal and Medicare instead. And what we know from looking at that data was that uh, the LAGS clinic saw a really high volume of patients. Um, and that's also what we heard from patients in interviews who said there were sometimes lines around the block or they waited hours before they got their care. There was a lot of patients coming in and out of LAGS. Um, and we also know from the data we looked at that they were sending uh, tissue and urine samples that they took from their patients to an in-house lab. And that allowed them to bill uh, not only for taking the sample, but also for the pathology and the, the testing itself. And that, that can be a really uh, lucrative revenue stream as well. Okay, so let's get back to the actual procedures that were being conducted by LAGS Medical Centers. I understand from, from reading your report that some of the procedures are considered to be fairly unorthodox approaches to pain management. Anna, could you tell us a little bit about what exactly were they doing? Yes, there were several things we found um, looking at the data and then talking to experts about the use of various kinds of procedures in pain management. Um, We found, for example, that there was a very high volume of what are called punch biopsies. These are procedures where a small skin sample is taken from patients, and it's used frequently in dermatology to diagnose cancer. And in pain management, it, it has a use. Labs can use it to count nerve density and look for a condition known as small fiber neuropathy, which can, can cause extreme pain in patients. It's an accepted procedure, but it's typically used in very limited cases, and it's mainly used by neurologists to diagnose um, small fiber neuropathy. Very few people in the field of medicine that doctors who worked like those who worked at LAGS Medical specialize in performed this procedure at all. We saw in the Medicare and Medi-Cal data that there were almost no other physicians in that field performing any of those procedures. But at LAGS Medical, thousands of those punch biopsies were performed on LAGS Medical patients in recent years. And then as Jenny said, those um, the samples themselves were being run through an in-house lab. And experts told us that doing the pathology work on these samples is extremely difficult. And if you do it incorrectly, you'll give a wrong diagnosis. Um, it's per- typically performed at labs with extensive expertise, expertise in this procedure. Um, meanwhile, from 2016 to 2019, Medicare, just Medicare, the federal um, insurance program, reimbursed Lagatuda nearly $6 million for those punch biopsy samples, just the samples themselves. We also looked at Medi-Cal data, that's, again, the state insurance program, and we found that would have been millions more dollars on the punch biopsy samples. Um, and we, we also looked at um, other uh, procedures as well in the data, and we found that LAGS was performing a high volume of a procedure called a nerve ablation. That's where a, a provider actually burns some of a patient's nerve endings to reduce their pain. Um, and nerve ablations are used in pain management. They can be helpful for some patients, but LAGS was doing more of them than other providers. Well, Jenny, I'll stick with you. You spoke with many of the patients in the clinic. Did the treatments they received 
help them manage their pain? Did they work? It's a really important question. Um, and it's also really hard to answer. We certainly heard from some patients who said they did get some relief from injections and nerve ablations, um, though they often said it was temporary. And we talked to other patients who said it didn't work for them. Um, the punch biopsy that we were describing earlier isn't used for treatment. It's a diagnostic test. Well, why were they running the diagnostic test? So it was to find out whether patients had this uh, illness called small fiber neuropathy. Gotcha, and, gotcha. you know, we don't know whether they did or didn't have it necessarily, but that was a test they were running really frequently to diagnose that. And, and other um, experts we spoke to said usually, except in rare circumstances, you wouldn't necessarily need to even run a diagnostic test like a punch biopsy to diagnose small fiber neuropathy, that you can do that in a, you know, in a clinical setting by, by asking patients questions and um, just sort of diagnosing them in the office as opposed to having to run a follow-up test like a punch biopsy. So Jenny, according to the employees that you spoke to in the course of your investigation, they claimed that they were receiving bonuses for performing uh, these injections. How did that work? And, and, and what are the ethics of a practice like that? Yeah, so we spoke with multiple former employees um, who told us that LAGS gave them financial incentives to perform certain procedures like injections. Uh, and they said they were also paid bonuses for seeing a very high volume of patients in a day. Um, they were paid an extra $10 for every patient they saw over 32 patients in a day. It's a lot of patients. Um, and in a recent deposition, Dr. Lagatuda said, he did pay bonuses for, for seeing a high volume of patients, um, but he said he did deny paying bonuses for specific procedures like injections. Um, we spoke with medical experts, and they told us it was unethical to have an, an incentive system for specific procedures. And one of the people we spoke with compared it to offering police officers a quota for speeding tickets. He said, you know, what do you think they're going to do? Well, let's get back to the drug screenings that they were uh, that they were doing as well. What Anna, can you explain what they were doing with their drug screenings that was different from what other clinics typically do? So there are different kinds of drug screens, and the way that they're billed is that they screen for a different number of drugs. And so there's you know everything from a very simple drug screen that's looking for the presence of one drug in somebody's urine to um, more extensive drug screens that test for many types of drugs. And as you can imagine, the reimbursement rates vary significantly for those different tests. Um, According to state and federal data, the LAGS clinics were performing a very large volume of the most complex form of drug testing. These are drugs that um, drug screens that test for the presence of 22 or more drugs in a patient's urine. And actually, experts told us they are rarely necessary, but they do pay more, um, especially because the data shows that LAGS was running the samples through an in-house lab. Um, according to the medical data we looked at, LAGS Medical did more of these extensive drug screens than any other medical provider in the state, and the next five highest users were all lab companies. And between Medi-Cal and Medicare, we found that LAGS did nearly 60,000 of these urine tests over, the, over a three-year period, um, and they would have been worth more than $11 million in those three years. So, okay, I, I have to ask you, Anna, who is regulating clinics like LAGS Medical? That's a great question. So the Medical Board of California regulates the doctors who work there. They're in charge of medical licensing. Um, labs and ambulatory surgical centers, which LAGS had a couple of, not all the clinics were ambulatory surgical centers, but they did have a couple. Those in laboratories are regulated by the federal government. Um, but several experts did describe that the oversight of private clinics generally is fairly limited. And it's challenging in the field of medicine because, um, you know, doctors are given a lot of leeway for what's uh, necessary care for their patients. And so it's challenging to look at, um, look at procedures and say whether or not it was medically necessary. One of the things that I thought was so so important about your reporting was how much you were able to humanize it. You, know, you spoke to a number of patients. And, and Jenny, tell us briefly, you know, what did you learn about their experiences? We ended up talking to about 17 patients from LAGS. Um, 
Most of them were not thrilled with their care there. Uh, and, and a few patterns emerged pretty quickly in the conversations we had with those patients. One of them was just how full the waiting, room, waiting rooms were and how long they had to wait to get their care. Um, a few of them we spoke with said it felt a little like an assembly line. And, you know, I'd say the other thing we heard repeatedly was that many patients felt they had to agree to get procedures done in order to continue getting their opioid prescriptions, even when they weren't sure they wanted those procedures. Um, another thing we heard was that um, many patients waited for months to get their medical records. They were unable to get them from lags after the shutdowns, and that made it really hard for them to arrange new appointments from other doctors. Um, you know, we also heard, and sometimes in, in really excruciating detail, what it was like for patients to go through withdrawal, withdrawal from their pain medications when they weren't able to get that follow-up care after a lag shutdown. Well, Anna, you know, given the number of clinics that were operating, I would imagine there was the number of patients that they that they uh, saw. I would imagine there was a pretty significant impact on the Central Valley's health system. Um, when the clinic shut down so abruptly. That's right. We first began reporting this story um, because we were forwarded an alert that came from the state to providers around the, around the state. Um, when the clinics shut down, it left tens of thousands of patients stranded looking for, for new doctors. And um, clinics across the counties where legs had facilities told us they were inundated with requests for new patients. And one of the challenges, and, and this is a national issue, is that many physicians and clinics have rules against taking on new patients who are on prescription opioids um, as a result of, you know, this very familiar uh, situation where there's been um, problems with opioid prescriptions for many years in the U.S. There's been this crackdown, and as a result, a lot of physicians don't want to take on new patients who are on prescription opioids. Um, but, you know, research shows that cutting a patient off from opioid prescriptions is extremely risky. They can be sent into withdrawal. They can have other health consequences. And the state was so concerned about this um, that they asked an expert to do trainings for physicians around around the counties where there were lags medical clinics, basically to try and convince more physicians to take on new patients. Um, that the person who did that training recently published an article in the New England Journal of Medic Medicine, and he said that it took as long as six months for patients to get new referrals, and that many patients have been going from emergency department to emergency department trying to get medications to avert opioid withdrawal. So it was a really big strain on the system generally, and it caused a huge amount of concern among um, state and local officials. I could imagine. Well, one more question before I let you both go. You know, the clinics are closed, but the person who owned those clinics, Lagatuda, where is he today? Dr. Lagatuda declined to speak with us for the story, so we don't really know. Um, but what we do know is that his medical license is still in good standing, and he said in a deposition that he is still seeing patients. Well, I've been talking with Anna Marie Barry Jester and Jenny Gold. They're both senior correspondents with Kaiser Health News. Thank you so much for um, talking to us a little bit about this really significant report that you just published. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. If you've ever attended a community college in California, odds are you were taught by a part-time instructor. They make up roughly two-thirds of the academic workforce, but many work semester by semester with little stability and few or no benefits. EdSource investigative reporter Thomas Peel documented the struggles they face and how it impacts students in a three-part series titled Gig by Gig at California's Community Colleges. I spoke with him about the investigation. Can you give us a sense of how reliant California's community colleges are on adjunct faculty or, or part-time faculty? Sure. Uh, they, they can't exist without it. Part-time faculty makes up two-thirds of the teaching ranks across the 72 districts, um, often with higher percentages than that. In fact, full-time faculty only outnumber part-time at two of 72 districts. And they teach about 48% of the classes. So colleges could not exist without part-timers. 
I know you've done a lot of reporting on the challenges that adjunct faculty face um, in terms of the precarious nature of their employment, their um, compensation, their benefits. So uh, this is a really general question, but can you just give us a sense of what it is like to work as an adjunct faculty member for a community college? Sure. Um, it's a semester by semester proposition. Generally, an adjunct can have up to three classes in a semester, but there's never a guarantee that they're going to get that much work. If a full-time faculty member loses a class or doesn't have uh, the required five classes that they teach, they can come in the day before a semester starts and take a class away from an adjunct. And that can have a dire impact on the adjunct. If an adjunct is relying on the district for healthcare, or more accurately, a contribution toward healthcare, and they lose a class like that at the last minute, they may also lose their health coverage. I've adjuncts talk to me about the fact that that is a very stressful situation they go through all the time. In fact, um, it's one of the reasons why if they're attempting to cobble together something close to full-time employment with these teaching gigs, they work at multiple colleges and they try to qualify for healthcare at more than one college or more than one district, excuse me, simply because they never know when they might lose it very quickly. And how does all of this stress impact the students that these faculty serve? Well, I mean, one of the things that you have with this part-time faculty working gig by gig is they're not on campus all the time. An adjunct may have a class end and in pre-COVID times have 10 minutes to get in the car and drive 50 miles to another district to teach another class. So availability is a big issue and that ties into office hours and everything that happens in the districts are matters of local control. So there are 72 different sets of rules. So it's some in some districts, office hours and pay for office hours are very limited for adjuncts. And I've had adjuncts talk about the fact that as much as they want to help their students, they also don't want to work for free. So they have either they don't have office hours or they may only have office hours for five or six weeks over the course of a semester because that's all that the district is willing to pay them. So there's a big availability problem for students with adjuncts. So I should disclose that I have lived this life. I was an adjunct uh, professor of journalism at Fresno City College, and I, re a couple years ago, transitioned into a full-time position. But my journey is highly unusual. And you've recently written about how difficult it is for most adjunct faculty to make that move. Tell us what you found. Adjuncts who dream of an academic career and start as adjuncts are much more likely to remain adjuncts than they are to end up with a tenure track job. The gig economy of higher education keeps them there because of the necessity that they provide and the fact that community college districts can't operate Without them, I talked to one district chancellor who said, um, trying to put some hiring reforms in place to give adjuncts a chance to move up. He said, essentially, when they hire full-time faculty, it's a resume-driven hiring. Someone's got great academic credentials and went to the right school, they're going to get that job ahead of an adjunct without really basing that decision on the ability to teach in the classroom. So they're looking for ways now to do, um, or this one chancellor is looking for ways to do deeper evaluations on adjuncts to see if they if they can be rewarded for all their hard work and sacrifice with tenure track jobs when they open. So earlier you mentioned that you know this is a local issue, and and I think that one thing that a lot of folks don't understand is that community colleges are structured more like K-12 than other public higher education. And, and so, so much of the decision-making happens at the local level. Can you just talk about how that distinction makes it so difficult to implement reform in, in this area and in other areas? Well, 
you know, it's 72 sets of rules. There are 72 local districts and none of them operate exactly the same. They are governed by trustees elected to four-year terms. They negotiate contracts differently. There are some in parts of the state that are extremely fiscally conservative. And faculty, both full and part-time, face varying work rules, varying pay. There's no set standard for what an adjunct or a full-timer gets on a pay scale. So it's all very, very bifurcated and sort of chopped up. And it makes the, you know, the state chancellor, Mr. Oakley, kind of in a bully pulpit position because he doesn't have a lot of power to enforce stringent reforms on the districts. But I know there have been some efforts legislatively to enact change. Can you just tell us where those efforts have gone? Sure. Um, Last year, Assemblymember Jose Medina from Riverside, himself a former adjunct and a former community college trustee, introduced legislation that would have increased the ability of an adjunct to have a higher teaching load to effectively have four classes in a semester. And that's both a big deal in terms of financial stability, um, kind of stabilizes or potentially stabilizes uh, the health insurance situation more and cuts down on the stress of running around between districts to have enough work to live on. And the governor vetoed that bill rather unexpectedly citing the potential for increased health care costs. Newsom then came around this year and has proposed $200 million be pumped into the state fund that reimburses districts for uh, 50% of adjuncts health costs should the district decide to provide either coverage or reimbursements if adjuncts acquire health care coverage on the open market. That's been praised by unions and advocates for adjuncts. The legislative analysts office came out with a report, though, that was a little skeptical of the governor's plan. And everyone's, you know, waiting to see how this makes it through to the May revise now. Well, before I let you go, I I would love to hear your thoughts about how the pandemic um, has impacted the lives of adjunct faculty. I know at the college uh, where I work, we have seen enrollments just plummet. And, mm. and I, that's you know, something that's happening statewide. But when enrollment goes down, the most vulnerable jobs are those adjunct faculty. So can you give us a sense of how things stand right now you know, in terms of pandemic-related impact? Sure. Enrollment is down across the system. It's you know, essentially plummeted now below 2 million. And there was... Um, a quote I used in one of the stories that was attributed in the New York Review of Books of All Things to a unidentified community college vice president who told a room full of adjuncts uh, once that they weren't faculty, they weren't even really considered people, they were units of flexibility. And, you know, in a very cold sense and insulting their humanity aside, that's what adjuncts are. And when enrollment goes down, there's going to be fewer slots for adjuncts to fill, meaning that they are losing work, scrambling, you know, to find and hang on to work. Um, About the only thing that seems a little bit helpful to them is with many of the colleges still on remote learning, they don't have the stress of physically commuting. At the same time, that robs them of the ability to have direct interaction with their students to build relationships the way that academics have built, you know, relationships with students for centuries. So the pandemic has had, you know, a lot of impact on these kinds of teachers. Well, I've been talking with Thomas Peel, investigative reporter with EdSource. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with me today. Sure. Kathleen, my pleasure. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. A new exhibit and programming series that showcases Oaxacan culture is launching next week at Arte Americas in Fresno. 
KVPR's Madi Bolaños spoke with Oaxacan artist Narciso Martinez to learn more about the event. Hi, Narciso. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Of course. We are talking about the Boom Oaxaca exhibit going on at Arte de Americas in Fresno. Can you explain the goal behind that? Uh, for what my understanding is that um, Boom, Boom Oaxaca will highlight the contribution of, of the Oaxacan community right in Central Valley uh, as to food sovereignty, indigenous sovereignty, and many other subjects that are going to come out of the exhibition. That's great. And I understand on the website, it says that the exhibit is not just about representation, but also acknowledging communities that are reimagining their own futures. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that means? For me as an artist, when it comes to our future, uh, it means that uh, what else can we do as, as, as individuals, right? And I, as, as an artist, I've been focusing on the future generation, at least in this, uh, in this specific piece that I created for this exhibition. But um, the way I imagined when I, when I read the statement of Boom Oaxaca and, and, and this idea of, of what, do, what, what do we want for our future? And um, I immediately thought of, uh, of the new generations of indigenous people here in the valley. And, my understanding and from my perspective, from my own experiences, I feel like we can do as much as anybody else in this country, meaning we can go to college, we can get degrees, we can get into politics, we can uh, organize, and we can be artists, uh, not only visual artists, but also like, I don't know, uh, musicians and, and movie productions. And, um, and so that, I, that's my understanding of what we can do with our future. That's great. And I know that you immigrated from Oaxaca yourself. And like you mentioned, you've worked in the fields. How does your experience as a farm worker, how does that influence your art? Well, it, it has everything to do with it. I, I work in the fields and and before I became serious with the idea of bringing the acknowledgement of farm workers into the art, I, I managed to go to school to, um, you know, to learn the language, to to get a college degree, and it was at a time where, where the where the time when we had to do research. That's when I really understood myself as as an indigenous person, myself as a minority, myself as a, someone who has struggled as anybody else in the fields and in the community. So I decided to take on that struggle and to highlight the struggles of these other my coworkers. But at that time when I was doing the research, they were my coworkers. At the same time, I was a student. I, I thought that was important to highlight these uh, these struggles because um, because through those struggles they are contributing to our to our economy to the country right and I thought that was important to at least for people to acknowledge that. Yeah, and I know that a lot of your work features your coworkers or farm workers painted on produce boxes. Why produce boxes and not canvases or other more quote-unquote, traditional outlets? So when it was, uh, when I was in graduate school, it was more about what we can say with the art, right? And not so much like if, whether I knew how to paint or not, whether, whether I knew how to draw or not. And so I was having a hard time trying to say what I wanted to say in my art with oil painting. I was doing oil painting. And it was a time when it was kind of frustrating for me. So I stopped painting. And I went back to what I knew how to do without, that would make me feel good, right? And, uh, and previously I had worked on, on cardboard right after I graduated from uh, my undergrad education um, because I was inspired by one of the, one artist, one professor, he was painting on cardboard. And I thought that was beautiful, you know, to use the tone of the cardboard as a tone of the skin of the subject. And that inspired me. So when I graduated, I started working on cardboard. My sister used to go to Costco and get boxes. And, uh, and I would cut out the labels, I would draw on the boxes. And so that, that I would work on without nobody telling me what to do, or how to do it, and nobody telling me whether it was right or was wrong, right? And so when I went to school and I was going through this little hard time, I stopped painting and I went back to working on cardboard. At this time, I was with my, helping my brother um, and he had sent me to Costco to get a um, pizza, I believe. So there was, there was a bunch of boxes there. I liked a box, particularly a banana box, and I took it with me. I drew on this box a banana man. And I did this banana man on this banana box, and then I took it to my class. And everyone was like um, 
excited to see that all my points were coming together, right? The subject matter, I was not struggling with, um, with, with technicality anymore. Like there was no oil painting. It was drawing, it was charcoal drawing on this cardboard box. And, and the fact that there was, there was this overlap with the drawing and the labels of the box was really significant in terms of, uh, I didn't have to struggle painting the ranch owners because at this time I was trying to talk about the differences of lifestyles between the ranch owners and the farm workers, right? Because when I was in the fields, obviously I experienced all of this and I wanted to bring that into the, into the art. And so this is what I was trying to say. And it, I was trying to, I was having a hard time painting it. So when, it, when I drew on, the, on this cardboard box, the, the idea was that the orchards or the ranch owners were represented by the labels and by the prints on the boxes. And, 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 the, and my, my, my mark murky makings on these drawings were represented the farm workers. And so I didn't have to paint literally the, the ranch owners. What I was trying to say got more universal because I was not only talking about the ranch owners where I work out, but also the corporations, right? The companies, the whole agribusiness and the fact that they were hand in hand with the farm workers and whether it was fair, right? The lifestyles of the, of the companies or the farm workers, all this was not literally there, but people could ask questions. People could uh, speculate. And, and that was the, the interesting part of it, no? And so, yeah, that's how it all started. And then soon I became... I, I started doing portraits on cardboard boxes, and then I started collaging more boxes and making more uh, complicated compositions. And uh, also did sculptures, and, and it just took from there. Wow. And will this work be on display at Arte Américas? Uh, yeah, we, we, have two, we have two sculptures, and then you know, we have other drawings, large-sized drawings that include farm workers, some like as portraits, some suggesting some kind of work or some kind of labor in the fields. And obviously they are on cardboard boxes, on produce cardboard boxes specifically. So you can see some of the labels. And there's also these, the large piece that I created for uh, specifically for Boom Oaxaca, which represents a little bit what we talk about, which is what we want for our future, what it is possible for our future. That's awesome. And as you probably know, Fresno is one of the most agriculturally productive regions in the country, and it's home to a large Oaxacan community. What does it mean to be presenting this exhibit here? Well, it's it's really significant. No, I think um, I think for the longest time, well, it's been precisely what about four years since I graduated, and I feel like I'm usually showing at institutions like uh, colleges, doing presentations, going to galleries going to museums. I feel like I'm bringing these uh, visual things to people who probably have never worked in fields, right? And the goal was for them to realize, educate, or maybe at least acknowledge that there are farm workers in the fields that are, uh, that are working hard behind the, the food that we produce every day. And so being here at Boom Oaxaca, Arte Americas, it totally has maybe a little bit of different significant because like you mentioned, Fresno has a, lot, a super large population of, of uh, Oaxacan community, uh, or maybe even not only Oaxacans, but, but also farm workers, right? People who work in fields. And I'm hoping that a lot of these people will go to the show and will see the work and will reflect themselves in the work. And, to, um, and I want them to feel represented. I want them to feel proud of what they do because what they do is important. And so that, that's the significance of this, uh, of this exhibition. Uh, it, that is really close connected to the community. That's, that's what I think is very important. That's great. And, you know, this exhibit is opening up more than two years into the pandemic. How has the pandemic influenced your art or the messages that you're hoping to convey through your art? It, it has created new ways of, of creating art, I guess, of new ways to... Um, to get around and see how we, how I'm gonna produce these stories, how I'm gonna, I'm gonna get my sources right. And throughout the pandemic, I still am in contact with a lot of my coworkers, and and many times they share their stories through phone calls, images, and I use that. Um, I use those images a few times. I have actually created piece specifically speaking about the pandemic and how 
these communities are still in the same struggle as before, even though they have deemed uh, important workers, right, essential workers. And, uh, and it's kind of sad, no? And there was a lot of buzz around uh, the farm workers throughout the pandemic. And my biggest fear or concern was that after the whole pandemic was over, business was going to be as usual. And it seems like it is, no? Because now we're, I'm seeing uh, the, same, the same old, right? This, there's not, I feel like nothing has changed, really. Um, I'm talking about at the policy level. We're still in the same, right? And even at, at, a, at a local level, I feel like many times farm workers are still unprotected. The, those rules, I feel like they're not as enforced. Mm-hmm. And so finally, you know, what do you hope people will gain or take away from Boom Oaxaca? The, the acknowledgement. I think I think that the, the acknowledgement of um, of these individuals who work really hard in the fields to produce the food that we consume, their contributions to the economy, uh, the fact that they are humans and they have families, they have struggles and they have dreams, and and I want them to feel represented in those images. I want the people who are not in the fields to acknowledge them as as humans and to hopefully contribute later on or maybe now with policies that would better their life for this individual. That's great. Thank you so much, Narciso. I appreciate you taking the time again. Of course, yeah. Thank you for, for being interested in what I do and spreading the voice and sharing your platform. The exhibit runs from March 6th through August 6th at Arte Americas in Fresno. And finally, the 33rd San Joaquin Valley Jazz Festival returns this year in person on February 25th and 26th, with an extra focus on California and the Valley. KVPR's David Ouse spoke with festival director Barb Schneever and guest artist John Hatamiya, who's performing with this big band on Saturday night. Barb Schoenifer, great to have you with us today. So you wear a lot of hats in music education, but the one we're we're going to focus on uh, for today is for the festival that actually will be going on right now when people are listening to this interview, the 33rd annual San Joaquin Valley Jazz Festival. You get to run that festival through your job as director of jazz bands at Buchanan High School. This is a big year, of course, because last year, you had to make the very difficult decision to scrub the festival because of COVID. And this year you had the very difficult job of figuring out how do I plan a festival when so many COVID balls are still being juggled in the air. Tell us what that's like and and what you've put together for this year. We're incredibly gracious to have the facility that we do at Buchanan, which is that outdoor stage. And so the ability to host all of the performance ensembles outside is really what's making this event possible. And having our headlining concert also be outdoors is ensuring that we have students and community able to attend that live as well. That's great. So people can feel free to come to that and not worry about being indoors. Uh, You will still have COVID protocols in place, though, for performers at the festival, right? Oh, absolutely. We do host throughout the festival uh, elements that are indoors. So the school ensembles that come warm up inside and then they get a post-performance clinic from one of our esteemed adjudicators indoors as well. And so we're all rocking what we're used to during the normal public school day, which are masks and bell covers. And how many student ensembles are participating in the festival this year? We're hosting 24 ensembles this year. And from what age group? What's kind of the youngest groups you have? Junior high through high school. And then uh, we are featuring collegiate groups on our noon artists. Very good. So among the uh, events, you have a, a noon concert on Saturday. Who's performing for that one? That's the Fresno State Jazz Orchestra under the direction of Richard Giddens. All right. And then you have a master's class uh, Saturday afternoon with your guest artist, uh, John Hatamiya, and that's mm-hmm. at 3 p.m. And then uh, the big event, Saturday night, the concert with the John Hatamiya Big Band. Yeah, it's exciting to feature somebody who's from California as well. So John's native of Sacramento, but all of the members in his band are kind of from throughout California. And we do have a, a couple Valley cats in the band an alumni from Bullard High School and Buchanan High School as well, sitting in the ensemble. That'll be great. So you bring students 
of your own to festivals like this? When you were a student, you attended festivals like this. Mm-hmm. What kinds of experiences did you get out of them growing up? And what do you think is a big benefit? The most important thing that I see from, from all those experiences is legitimizing what we do in the classroom outside of the classroom. It's super easy for what we do as educators to exist in a vacuum. Just the four walls that we're in with the students for the time frame, we get to, you know, rap with them. But it's not until you get to travel, which kids will always find fun, even if it's local. And then you hear other adults and see other peers your own age work on the same types of things that you're working on, receive the same types of comments, you know, uh, have the same sort of achievements and struggles, too, that you realize that this is a community and this is an art that every Everybody takes part of, and it is more than just something that you can do at public school. It's something that you can do outside and for the rest of your life as well. That's Barb Shinover, director of the San Joaquin Valley Jazz Festival. I also had a chance to ask John Hatamiya about his experience in jazz festivals. I think it's an amazing experience. I know that when I was growing up, a lot of my most impactful moments in terms of just getting me on my path to becoming a musician came from these kinds of festivals being around other student musicians uh, being around other you know peers who share that same sort of passion for for music Um, and not only that but then getting to see guest groups that are you know playing the music on the highest level and devote their life to it that that was something that I know for me growing up was was definitely a big deal and so i hope that uh you know bringing my band myself and 18 other fantastic musicians um hopefully we can have that sort of impact on someone too uh, at the event so your composer when did you start writing i didn't actually start writing until i was in college and i didn't actually start writing for big band until my senior year of college but that's become a big part of what i do in the years since Um, So that's kind of taken over a huge chunk of my focus and definitely my musical identity is leading big band, writing for big band. Well, you don't just write for a big band. Uh, You've done some writing and recording with smaller ensembles, most notably album that you put out on the Orenda label two years ago, 2020 really, really striking work and a very personal bit of work for you. Tell us how that album came about and your process and in putting it together. Yeah. So, so this band, uh, for, so the album is called more than anything and it's, um, dedicated to my mom who I lost to lung cancer, uh, back in 2012 while I was a undergrad student. And at that point I hadn't really been writing a lot of music. I was still just like in just out of my sophomore year of college. I started writing a little bit, but the processing of all of the emotions sort of related to her death and everything that I had to, that I was kind of working through beyond that, at, you know, in the years following, I ended up being a big sort of artistic inspiration for getting new music onto the page, getting new music, you know, out with the group. Um, and so the band uh, that, that recorded that album, we had been playing a number of shows in, in 2018, 2017, 2018. And uh, I ended up getting access to some free studio time. And so I just got them together. We didn't even rehearse for the session. We just got together and played. And um, I didn't go into it thinking we would be recording an album, but it really, after we played, it was very evident that, you know, it felt like a kind of a complete work and uh, a great sort of snapshot of the band. And um, yeah, really happy with how it turned out. The the crazy thing about the album was we put it out late February, 2020, and still to this day, haven't really had a chance to do any sort of album release show. Everything shut down the week after. Um, So it's been kind of crazy with that, but I'm hoping to get that group back together and to try to do some sort of album release, even though it's been two years.
That's music of trombonist, composer, and educator John Hatamiya from his album More Than Anything, a 2020 release on the Orenda record label. name of that composition was Some Might Say, and before that we also heard another tune from that album, Dreamscape. John Hatamiya is the guest artist at this weekend's St. Joaquin Valley Jazz Festival, taking place today and tomorrow at Buchanan High School in Fresno. Tomorrow's concert is sold out, but fear not. So if you're not able to get tickets, though, there's another way that you can experience that concert, right? Yes, we're very excited to partner with CMAC this year. So uh, you'll be able to watch the headlining concert on, I believe, Xfinity Channel 94 and UVerse Channel 99 and online at CMAC TV. So we're excited to broadcast this out to the community at large as well. Barb Shinver, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So whether you're lucky enough to attend in person or if you're viewing on cmac.tv or on cmac on your local cable provider, here's a bit of what you might hear with the John Hatamiya Big Band tomorrow night at San Joaquin Valley Jazz Festival. For Valley Edition, I'm David Alves. And that's today's Valley Edition. You could hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You could also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show was produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mavi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment, health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity.